Welcome back this morning as we're getting ready to return as promised to a familiar passage in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul addresses specifically husbands and wives. As promised, last week we began looking at this passage and um, particularly at the, the commendation that Paul gives to wives, the startling, the stirring, the invigorating, and the somewhat even um, provoking commandment that Paul gives that wives submit to your own husbands. And I promised you wives in our congregation to make sure your husbands are here this week because it's their turn. As we turn our attention on the command that Paul gives to husbands, husbands love your wives. Some of you are here and realizing that it was a trap. We want you to know that we're still glad that you're here. You know, looking at this command that Paul gives to husbands, I note a couple of things just throughout my experience and in sitting through sermons and Bible studies where this passage has come up and the particular emphasis that is placed on verses 22 through 24. Note, though, that the passage actually makes up verse 22 all the way through 33. And just considering that, it is evident that Paul has significantly more to say to husbands than he does to wives. And I think that's worth noting because at the crux of what Paul is actually writing about is the way that husbands love their wives. A part of the issue that I think we come up against is that the command to love your wives, well, that just seems simple. Duh, I love my wife. Doesn't she know that I'm married to her? Let's face it, sometimes we replace being, uh, using common sense with just being simplistic and missing the actual point. Our language fails us in realizing that the commendation that Paul gives to husbands is actually more significant than that that he gives to wives. We would like to belabor the point that Christian wives should should submit to their own husbands, but we pay little attention to the fact that husbands should love their wives. This morning, I want to make sure that I do this passage the dignity that it deserves. I, I want to pray that as a church, that as we look at this, we wouldn't skate past the part that convicts us, the part that challenges us, or the part that even leaves us realizing that there's more here than we probably are even expounding upon now. I'll note first that husbands, our instructions to wives is compelling. That it's significantly more than what wives are commanded to do in marriage. But as we begin this morning, I'd like to just set a few ground rules, some of which I believe if you've been here for any length of time and you've been around me in the way that I study the Bible and you've begun to pick up the principles that we use for understanding the Bible in a correct contextual way that prevents us from perverting it or corrupting it into something that it is not, you will know that there are some safeguards and rules for Bible study. That when we study the Bible, there's a particular set of questions that we ask. There's even a particular order that comes about. We say, what does this say? What does it mean? And then finally, we ask, what does it mean to me? I mean, those are the three questions we ask studying any biblical passage. What does it say? Common sense, observational skills, what is the text saying? 
What does it mean? In order to figure that out, we have to know what's going on in the context, both culturally, both historically, and textually. What does it mean, finally, to me? The Bible doesn't, it isn't written so that we have some sort of academic study so that we can uh, fill our heads with information. Instead, it's written with the purpose of transforming lives, and so we cannot skip past application. Husbands, if you leave here not knowing how to love your wife in a biblical way, either I have failed or you have failed. And I do not like to admit that I am a failure, so I'm telling you that if you leave here not loving your wife, you have failed. Hopefully. What does all this have to do with the ground rules for studying the Bible? We cannot lose sight of Paul's overall message through the book of Ephesians written thus far. Marriage as an institution belongs to the church. Marriage is a part of Christian relationships that help to equip the saints so that they can grow in equipping more saints. Fundamentally, the purpose of marriage is actually to equip the members of the church. Our identity, then, is not wrapped up in whether we're single or whether we're married or whether we come to the church here and we're hearing a passage about husbands and wives or how these things should work, but it's going back all the way to what Paul began in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, where our identity is solely in the fact that God created us in His image. And finally, that He redeems us through the work of the Son on the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit reborn inside of us. Just as we mentioned, it would be inappropriate and even biblically contradictory for husbands to tell their wives that they should be more submissive. It is also inappropriate for wives to say, husbands, you should be more loving. Wait, what? This is the second ground rule. I did a bad job transitioning. Let me make sure you're following me. First ground rule that I'm laying. Don't lose sight of what Paul's writing in the rest of the book of Ephesians. This has to do with the church. It's not just husbands and wives. Second ground rule. It's easy to apply the Bible to yourself or to other people. And as commonplace as being human, that's what we like to do. I like to read the Bible and I like to say, if so-and-so could just get this through their head. Oh, if so-and-so could just live obediently to this passage. Let me be clear again about the three questions we ask when studying the Bible. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to so-and-so? Wait, that's not what I said, is it? What does it mean to me? The Bible does not exist so we can apply it to other people's lives so that we have some sort of cure-all for everyone that comes up against us. Even in pastoral ministry, I'm not sitting here trying to apply the Bible for you. That's not my job. That's the Holy Spirit's job in you. I'm going to read the text and study it, and I'm going to expound what it's actually saying so that we might have some sort of understanding that we can worship and praise God from this. But ultimately, in the role of preaching, it's your job to apply what the Bible says. I'm going to try to help. Because in studying this, I realize that I can't apply this for you, 
But to study it correctly, I have to apply it to myself. So I've already done some of this work in applying the Bible to my life. The second ground rule I'm trying to lay is simply make sure that when we read passages that are directed towards husbands, that we realize that this is applicable for everyone in the church, married and unmarried. Husbands and not husbands. Jesus' half-brother James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. One of the most remarkable things about coming and being a part of a church and reading the Bible and being involved in Bible study isn't that we stuff our heads with everything that the Bible has or that we could be uh, revered as someone who has a good grasp on biblical knowledge or even has a good biblical foundation in their life, but that that would be evident in the way that we live our lives. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's not just a command to go out and to do something. That's a command to understand the biblical principle of submission, not in an academic sense in understanding how the church relates to Christ, but in a biblical application, applicational sense in that I understand what it means to be in submission to one another out of reverence for Christ as a member of the church. Husbands, go and love your wives. This isn't just an application to be loving, but this is to actually understand and to know what love means when God talks about it so that when we start to draw up pictures of the cross and what Christ has done, this application is bigger than just our relationships and marriage because it paints a picture of what it actually means to be a Christian. This is, in fact, the mystery that propels marriage into God-honoring institutions. I mentioned last week the crazy cycle when wives are disrespectful or whenever wives act disrespectfully, it causes husbands to respond unlovingly. When husbands respond unlovingly, it causes wives to react disrespectfully. If you're not married... So for those of you who are building up to that point in your life, this is very true. You get stuck in the crazy cycle and you don't even realize it. Sometimes the arguments that we have, we don't even know why we're arguing at this point. All that I know is I feel disrespected and I am not going to be loving. It's a stupid type of protest. But the same thing can happen When we look at this biblical command, specifically what's written in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And we start to see that this picture of God's image born inside of us is actually painting a picture of what it means not just to honor the way that God has created us, but it's starting to paint a picture in how, not just how we can get along and solve problems, but how we can honor God's image in our lives and our marriage can actually bring us closer to understanding what he's done in the church. 
Oh, and that testimony is not just applicable to our lives as husbands and wives, but now it's applicable to anybody that sees that in our marriage. This is the most, this is, and I, I, I try to be passionate about it and put it into words, but honestly, I just, I don't think with words, and so I have to translate my thoughts into words, and it's really a real big hassle that I do for you all every single week, because this is the coolest thing in the entire Bible when you start to read it, and you start to look at Ephesians and the way that it's targeted. Remember in chapter 3, we were talking about how this is specific for the whole church and not just the local assembly, but all the people of God who will one day be in heaven together? And then it gets more specific and applies how we're supposed to equip one another in chapter 4, and that's specific, obviously, to the local assembly. And then he gets more specific, and he says, this is for the individual Christian, that you should live in a way that's honoring and dignifies the way that you've been called as a Christian. Oh, and now he's going to zoom out again. Not to the whole church level, but now he's going to say, now that you understand the individual, all you little individual saints... Members of one another have a relationship. And it starts to play out. That's where we find ourselves looking at husbands and wives, that we would honor each other because to equip one another, we have to have these relationships. That's why it's really impossible for a Christian to say that they're a Christian and have no burden for the local church. Either they haven't read the Bible, they don't understand it, or they're not actually saved. So anyways... Those are our ground rules. One, understand the whole context of Ephesians. Two, make sure that you're applying this to your life and not the person sitting next to you. And finally, because we're addressing a topic that has the potential to impact so many of you, I want to begin this morning just by um, explaining the purpose and preaching God's word because I realize that this is a sensitive topic. The truth is that husbands and wives have real difficulties, and as we've looked at last week, part of the problem is sometimes they need help, but that doesn't happen because our culture has isolated husbands and wives, teaching us that marriage is this sort of private institution that only belongs to the people that are involved. But if you read the Bible, it's pretty clear that marriage belongs to the church and that it's not a private institution, but it's the church's responsibility to care for it as much as it is the two people who are in it. And so I want to say that by no means is this supposed to be a marriage conference. I'm simply preaching through the book of Ephesians, and we've gotten to Ephesians 5.22. But if you're in a place where you need that help, I want to encourage you to reach out and receive that help because there are things that we can do to help you. There are solutions that we can provide. There are assistance that we can give you. And all of these things are available if you will be open to it. A Christian marriage is not one with no problems or even a marriage with fewer problems. It may well mean more problems, but it does mean a life in which two people are able to accept each other and to love each other in the midst of problems and fears. It means a marriage in which selfish people can accept selfish people without constantly trying to change them and even accept themselves because they realize personally that they have been accepted by Christ. Christian relationships serve the saints in revealing to them the level of unmerited love that, they have already, that has already been lavished upon them by God. At Denver Street, we believe chiefly 
and are reliant on the sufficiency of Scripture as our guidebook for worship. And as such, when we speak of such things, we know that we have the answers for all things pertaining to worship. Marriage is an act of worship. If you need help worshiping in your marriage, I want to make sure that you know that we are ready to provide that. With all of that said, let's seek to understand the goodness of God's law. The way that it bears an impact on our lives, the way that it instructs us in holiness, the way that it guides us in obedience, the way that it illuminates our steps, the way that it restores our soul. I hope at this point that you've made your way to Ephesians chapter 5 and you're ready for, to read along with me when the time comes. But in preparation for the reading of God's Word, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this morning and the opportunity that we have to worship. Lord, I thank you for those that you've called together this morning to worship you in this assembly, to read your word and to proclaim your truth, to rely on you and to seek your wisdom. God, we know this morning that we are incapable of understanding your word without you translating it for us to our hearts. And so, God, we pray and we seek your wisdom and your counsel, your guidance and your leadership in doing this that you would reveal to us the amazing truth found in your law, that we would have an understanding of what it means to love. God, that we would have an understanding of what it means to be your bride as your church. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray. Amen. The Bible says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The first issue we come upon when looking at what Paul's writing to husbands is it seems simple. And I tried to make a point of this in the introduction. We say that husbands are supposed to love their wives, and we think we've got it. But we have a communication problem, because we don't get it, because we don't see it. This is as much a problem in our marriages and even in the church, uh, even in the world, as wives being unsubmissive or disrespectful to their husbands. We don't know what it means to love our wives, let alone what it means to love one another. The issue is the same problem that I see in raising my kids. My kids really don't have that much of an obedience problem. From time to time, they get tired and cranky, and they don't understand when I'm they can't discern when I'm playing and when I'm not playing. And at that point, it's not really an obedience problem, it's a communication problem. They don't know that I'm being serious. 
Sometimes they get so tired, and I love having one and two-year-olds because it teaches me so much about the way that God regards his children. <laughs> but, but sometimes, you know, I say, it's time to pick up. Well, that instruction's just too broad for them, and they get overwhelmed, and so they end up running in circles. And if you spend any time with Bubba, you'll realize that he has the attention span of a fly. I have a little song that I do for Bubba. Don't get distracted, don't get distracted. And I do this whenever I'm telling him to do something so that he is reminded as he's getting distracted left and right that he's supposed to be following me. It doesn't always work. Sometimes I have to break the instruction down. Instead of just saying clean up, I have to say, Bubba, pick this toy up. Good job picking that toy up. Bubba, bring the toy to this box. Put it in the box. Oh, and it's mind-numbing as a parent because the whole point was I didn't want to clean up. And here I am having to walk through every task in the middle of it. I say that just as an illustration so that we're clear that the problem that we have in reading this passage and applying it to our lives isn't that we don't understand what it means husbands love your wives. It's that the communication fallout is that love in the English language, is the most general word that we have. I love my wife. I love the catfish from the dairy. Do those two things mean the same thing? No. no. If I loved my wife the way that I love catfish from the dairy, we'd have a problem. They don't mean the same thing. Likewise, and this is part of God's brilliance and sovereignty in the way that he writes um, and chooses that his holy scripture, the breathed out word of God, would be written in the Greek language in the New Testament. Because in the Greek language, there's not one ambiguous word for love, but there's many. I'm actually not sure how many there are, but I know there's at least eight. The common ones are the three that we talk about. Uh, there's the word agape that's used here. There's the word eros, which is, um, well, the easiest way to explain what eros means is just to tell you that it is the root word that we get our English word erotic from. It's a selfish love. It's what do I get out of it? And then there's the, the other word that's pretty familiar is philia, and that's the general kind of love that we have for those people around us. The city Philadelphia is based off of this word, the city of brotherly love. And so I, Philia, my friends, I have an affection for them. But here, Paul writes, husbands, agape your wives. It doesn't need any illustration to point out that this is more specific than we use it in our common English language. This isn't interchangeable with the way that I, I cannot agape pizza. I can't. I can like it. I can have an affection or an affinity for it or a preference for it, but I cannot agape food. This kind of agape love I'm going to try to define it, but I'm not going to spend too much just time defining it because Paul does a great job of giving us a list of illustrations, one after the other, modeled after how Christ loves the church. Because agape love is the kind of self-sacrificing love. If eros is selfish, what's in it for me? 
Agape has none of that because it's all what's in it for the, re- the recipient of that love. It's all self-giving. It's all self-sacrificing. Love becomes the fundamental cornerstone of the entire commandment to men. We should make sure that we understand it. We should make sure that we understand and we're clear that in marriage we're talking about a self-sacrificing love, that it isn't about what's best for me, it's about what's best for you, and that husbands, that we are called to lay down everything for her, for our bride, to give it all up for her. And the good news about this is... Part of the brilliance of this revelation that Paul's giving to us here is that it's all pointing back to the way that God has designed men and women. Last week we spent some time talking about God created man and women in the garden, that our creation began there, that inside of man and women is the image of God, that we are co-equal and heir to God's grace and recipients of all of these things, that both men and women have the image of God inside of them, but they are different. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to be able to realize that men and women are different. In marriage, one of the the great things is that as these two things come together, they begin to, um, they're not just in congruence with one another, but they're they're complementary to one another. Because they start to not only build upon each other in how husbands and wives are going to grow towards Christ and how they're going to be edified, but they're also going to reveal the way that Christ is growing and nurturing the church. Oh, God, it's so cool. Because when we start talking about how husbands are supposed to be self-sacrificing towards their wives, we realize that everything we look at and how men are made in the image of God, this actually is born into them to be self-sacrificing. It's how men are built, willing to fight, willing to struggle, willing to sacrifice because we have something to fight for. I don't like making references to movies too much, but if you've ever seen Braveheart, Man, isn't that movie really captures what it means to be willing to fight for something? William Wallace in the movie, his entire motivation is fighting for something that he loves. And by the way, it, I don't care for the movie as much as I, I, the director or the, the writer, not the director, Randall Wallace who's also the writer of the movie Secretariat, We Were Soldiers, and all of these things. And by the way, Randall Wallace has a seminary background, if you're interested. In all of these things, he's actually what he's on to in writing these narratives that capture and, and pull audiences in is actually simply just looking at the way that God has designed people. And he's drawing out what people are willing to fight for. This might come as a surprise to the women in our congregation. It's not that your husband wants to fight. It's that he wants to have something he will fight for. What makes men confrontational is not that we are brawlers, but that we simply desire to have something worth fighting for. That... that, Instinct born into us isn't something that comes from nowhere. This is part of the way that God has designed us in different ways. Willing to fight. Would you be surprised 
if we looked at, at all of these stories and all of these narratives, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, that this commandment to love your wives is actually intrinsic to the way that men are built. To be self-sacrificing, and verse 25 continues, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, the picture that Paul gives us is Christ dying on the cross for the benefit of the entire church. Husbands would be willing to do this because it's built into them. This is kind of remarkable. I mean, we can look at like modern, uh, modern literature. I, I mentioned Randall Wallace's work. And then we look at Paul's revelation when he's writing to the church in Ephesus here. And then we look at the way God created us all the way back in Genesis. And there's this common thread in the way that we're designed. And we start to realize that these interactions between husbands and wives, submission and love, self-sacrifice, self-yielding, um, all of these things, the common thread is simply in design. The more that we understand design, the more that we understand that this just makes sense. It's not about getting along. It's not about solving problems. It's not about having this great marriage. It's about honoring the image of God that is inside of us. It's about accepting the design that God has given to us. A husband's love is modeled after Christ's love for the church, and that love first is sacrificial. It's sacrificial, it's giving up things. And this might look different, it might look different, it might, it might come across different, but this is the cornerstone of what it means to love your wife. And this is what's so mind-blowing to me whenever I hear people harbor on this passage in Ephesians chapter 5, and they say, I really, the problem in my marriage is she just won't love, she won't respect me the way that I deserve to be respected. She won't honor the way that God has designed marriage to work. And they come to me as pastor trying to get them on their side so that they have the Bible guy on their side for all of their um, bent-up feelings and everything else. And we realize, wait, if I'm applying this to myself it's not that I should be respected. It's that even when I'm not respected, I should give everything up for her. That's why I say it's inappropriate for a husband to tell his wife that she should be submissive. And it's inappropriate for a wife to tell her husband that he should be more loving. Because the command here isn't that your husband should love you more or that you should submit to your husband more. I'm sorry, or that your wife should submit to you more. It's that as a husband, you should love your wife regardless if she's being respectful. You should be submissive to your husband even when he's not loving. It's the opposite of the crazy cycle, right? My wife responds to me unloving or disrespectfully, which causes me to respond unlovingly, which causes her to respond disrespectfully. You can break the cycle because it... If we understand the way that verse 32 is laid out and verse 33 is laid out, even when my wife responds disrespectfully, I should love her. And we start to see that not only can this crazy cycle send us in the downward path, but there's also kind of an encouragement and an exciting cycle that happens. When I love my wife, regardless of the way that she treats me, she begins to respect me. When she responds respectfully, it encourages my love. When I respond lovingly, it encourages her respect. Be careful, this isn't an exchange, like a vending machine type of thing where I can put in what I want and get out what I need. 
But we start to see that this picture of marriage is actually about giving each other what we need in our relationships. Husbands thrive on respect, as we looked at last week. Wives thrive on being loved. And this is really where Paul starts to move the picture because agape love isn't just sacrificial, but it's sanctifying. Look at what he says in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This picture of sanctifying, when we talk about what sanctification is in theological terms, it is literally being saved. Right? Salvation takes part in three phases. Now, that doesn't mean that you're progressively more saved as you go through life. You are completely and wholly justified the moment that you accept Christ as your Savior. That's all pointing towards the day that one day in the future, I will be separated from the sinful, carnal desires of the flesh, and I will be perfectly glorified with Him in glory. Already there's two ways that I'm saved, right? I'm justified the moment that I have a Savior, and I'm glorified the day that I'm with Christ. What happens in the middle? I'm sanctified. I'm progressively being made more holy. Actually, what sanctified means is to be made more holy or to be set apart from something. So the command here for husbands to set their wife apart is to cherish her and to cleanse her with the washing, is to make her feel special like she's the only person in the world. What does it mean to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church? Think about what it means for the church to be set apart. I mean, we love talking about this in theological circles, right? This is so much fun. What does it mean that God has an elect? We could spend time on that and we could get lost, but here's the only thing that we need to understand. There are some people in this world who will come to know Christ. They will be saved. Everyone who does not put their faith in their Savior will die and will go to hell. If you're a part of the church, you're set apart from the rest of the world. Because God loves you. Because He chose you. In marriage, it's the same thing. My wife, this is my wife. I don't think you realize how harmful it is to a marriage whenever you make passing remarks at the movie stars and everything else that comes across on the TV, and you give any inclination that there's any type of appreciation for whatever you're seeing. Husbands, we take for granted that our wives know that we love them and that we cherish them because we choose to be with them every single day. Your wife is designed differently than you. You need to tell her that she is what matters to you. You need to remind her and reaffirm her that you are what is set apart because you are special. It's a part of what she needs. It's a part of what loving looks like because Christ sanctified the church, setting her apart so that she would 
goes on in verse 27, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And we realize part of the setting apart isn't just in a physical type of attraction, but it's also in a spiritual type of upbringing that we would make her holy, that we would make her set apart, not just in our eyes, but in God's eyes, that we would prepare our wives to love and honor God, that we would take special pride and emphasis in making sure that they are raised up. If we care about the church being equipped, husbands should care even more about their wives being equipped. Husbands should be concerned with the spiritual welfare of their family. Second, and very obviously, husbands, you should have affections for their wife. It should matter to you whether she's spiritually okay, spiritually lethargic, or spiritually dead. Our love for our wives isn't just in the sacrifice that we make going to work or whatever it else, whatever, whatever that sacrifice looks like. For some people, it's keeping a job that has benefits that provide for the family that maybe they don't um, propagate a career that somebody would rather go for. And there's all sorts of illustrations that go along like that. But it's not just about sacrifice. It's about sanctifying, making holy, cleansing, Reminding. And finally, there's one more word that Paul gives us. It isn't just that our love should be sacrificing or sanctifying, but it should be satisfying. Verse 28 ends, He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. The picture of Christ identifying with the church and giving himself up for her is he identifies first with the fallen state of a sinful world so that it is possible for anyone who wants to identify with a Savior to be made a new creation. His love for the church is almost reciprocal because as he loves the church and calls this people to him, which by the way goes all the way back to design again because why did God create us to begin with? Because he wants us to have a relationship with him. And he restores that relationship through Christ. And the husband does this for his wife because he wants a relationship with his wife. Sometimes I think we lose the emphasis that is placed on the command found in Genesis that When a husband leaves his mother and father, he cleaves to his wife so that the two shall become one flesh. It isn't just sacrificial. It's it's not just sanctifying, but it's satisfying. The way that you love your wife should be so intricate into the way that you care for her that it is the only thing that brings you pleasure. In fact, the way that you love your wife should be the motivation for loving your wife more. This is the model in how Christ loves the church. Christ loves the church so much because it brings him pleasure to love the church. And so he loves the church more. 
It isn't what he gets in it. God doesn't love us and save us and set people apart so that we can gather together and sing songs and worship him and bring praise to him. We do that simply because it's right, because he's God and we're not. He loves us and makes all of these things possible just because he loves us. Husbands, the way that you love your wife should be exactly the same. You love your wife not because she respects you, not because you need a helpmate, not because you want something worth fighting for, but because the way that you love your wife encourages you to love her more in a satisfying way. Back up and understand what Christ has done for the church. He sacrifices himself so that we can identify with him. He identifies with sinners so that sinners can identify with the Most High. In that recognition, he also cleanses us so that we might be presented to him holy. When we do this, we realize that our relationship with our wives, the spiritual responsibility to lead our families in righteousness, isn't just God honoring, it's God testifying. We honor the unique design that is inside of God in each individual when we seek to glorify him in our relationships with one another. In marriage, this means honoring the need that husbands have for respect and the need that wives have for love. Last week, I gave the wives an acronym that they can use to understand what their husband's needs chair. I'm not going to go over it again because it's five letters, which is way too long, and I think I'm already short on time. And I have another acronym for husband so that you can understand how you're supposed to love your wife. The first, it's the word couple. And I'll tell you why the significance behind the word couple. Men have a tendency to try and handle everything on their own. The reason men are the last ones to be willing to go to marriage counseling whenever relationships need it is because they think they can solve all the problems on their own. By the way, men, if you're doing that, I just want you to realize that you are actually creating a terrible example for the rest of your family because the Bible, if it tells us one thing, is you can't do it on your own. Remember that you're a couple that your wife wants to be close to you. Because a husband is supposed to cleave unto his wife, just like shoulder-to-shoulder time is important to men, your wife needs face-to-face time from you. It causes her to feel emotionally connected and even energized because she realizes she's getting the attention that she deserves as your wife. Create time for her and share that time with her. Tell her that you love her, that you admire her, and that you appreciate her, and do not take for granted that she knows these things because of what you do. Put them in words. If that makes you feel uncomfortable, start writing letters. Oh, that we should be open. Your wife wants you to open up to her and to talk, to not be closed off. To not act angry or disinterested whenever problems are coming up, but to share those problems with her. As husbands loving their wives, we should be willing to share our problems with our wives. She may not be able to help, but that isn't why we share things with one another. We share things because being open is really, being open is really intentionally communicating that when we seem withdrawn because of life, that we are still actively being tender and transparent. You, be understanding. 
When your wife shares things with you, don't try to fix all of her problems. Wives, it's still true. You should be willing to listen to your husband's advice because that makes him feel appreciated. But men, have the discernment to know when to keep your mouth shut. Be understanding. When your wife vents and says things and you say, well, the problems, you just have a bad attitude. As much as that might be the case, that's not what she needs to hear from her husband. She wants you to be understanding and to say, I understand why you're frustrated about that, especially if you have an attitude like that. And then just shut your mouth before you get to the end of the sentence. Be peacemaking. Do you know how easy it is to solve 82% of the problems if we just say, I'm sorry? There is power in saying, I'm sorry. Because a husband and his wife are one, you should be willing to make peace with yourself. There's power in saying, I'm sorry, because two are made one flesh. They should seek to be at one with one another. But also make sure that you don't just skate past the issues that are bothering you. Talk through a resolution. Don't just drop things because it's uncomfortable. Don't respond to hurt feelings by bringing it up. We say sometimes hurt people hurt people. That's the problem that happens in marriages all over the world. Hurt people hurt people. That's the crazy cycle, isn't it? Talk through issues. Be willing to face conflict. How many of Paul's letters in the New Testament are encouraging churches to deal with confrontation? We don't know how to do confrontation because it wasn't modeled for us. Confrontation is a part of life because it leads to resolution. Confrontation doesn't lead to disunity. It leads to unity. Be willing to have the tough conversations. Loyalty. It's so easy to take for granted that our wives know that we love them and that we're committed to them. We think that we express that in the things that we do because we keep coming home. I don't know if I'm just speaking from my own marriage, or if, but I think that this is pretty universal. Your wives want to be reminded that you are loyal to them. And finally, esteem. Your wife wants to know that you honor and cherish her. You have to tell her. You have to make her feel treasured. Like the most loved woman on earth, your motivation for doing that comes from how wonderful it is to love somebody that you consider yourself. Do I actively work to make my wife feel treasured like the most loved woman on earth? Do I take my wife's efforts with the family for granted? 1 Peter 3.7 says, Because a husband is to grant his wife honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, it behooves me to express and appreciate her God-given value as my equal 
on a daily basis. Love's a difficult thing because we'd like to skate past it because we think that we understand it. But the truth is, the more that we look into God's Word and understand the way that He has loved us, the more we realize how little understanding we actually have. Marriage is the greatest institution given to the church because it is a constant reminder in our faithlessness that that love crosses is so much bigger than, than what we think we understand. In application, this isn't just for husbands, but it's for the whole church to see the way that Christ has already loved those who are set apart. The way that He is pursuing those who are in rebellion against Him. The way that He is still today calling the lost to salvation. People from the lowest pits of despair and depravity, He is still reaching out to them. The people who are think that they are saved, are still experiencing transformation whenever they put their faith in Christ. Because the way that Christ loves the church is self-sufficient and self-perpetuating. He loves because He loves. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word and for the instruction that we have. God, I pray that you would continue to convict us of the truth of your love that you would reveal to us what it means in our lives, that we would know how to live it out. Father, I pray that you would be with the husbands in this congregation. Specifically, God, I pray for them because I know that there is an enemy at work that attacks our families first. God, I've seen it in ministry. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in my personal experience. When I experience spiritual warfare, God, I know that it is in my house first. God, I pray that you would protect husbands protect their testimony and the testimony of their marriage and helping them to live out what it means to love their wives the way that you have loved your church. God, in application, I pray that you would be with our church and helping her know what it means to be loved by you. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray, amen.